You've heard of the Red Cross, active in medical and relief work around the globe. This week on The Land and the Book, we'll meet the Israeli equivalent organization. For the past 25 years, our guest has been on the scene at nearly every mass casualty incident in Jerusalem. He runs training drills around the world, stories of hope and courage from Israel. That's all ahead, and we invite you to join us next for The Land and the Book. Welcome. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar, author, and uh, conference speaker. We're looking at a, a very unusual situation here as we come to the end of 2020. And Charlie, I want to first say, how was your Christmas? You know, John, we felt like we were replaying an old Christmas classic. We were home alone. But you know, there's something to be said for peace and quiet. There is, there is. Well, we're going to take a look today at the major news stories that have kind of permeated 2020 for the Middle East region. Things that continue to be major themes and will likely impact 2021. So that said, we'll dig right in. As 2020 draws to a close, let's look back over the top stories that have come out of the Middle East over the past years. And our first story, Charlie, has to be the impact of the global pandemic on the Middle East. How has the virus left its imprint on that region? Well, the most obvious impact is the loss of life. Uh, The numbers might look small compared to the United States, but they're still significant for the region. Iran has over 54,000 deaths, and their own health agency believes the actual number is much higher. Turkey is approaching 19,000 deaths, Iraq almost 13,000, Egypt over 7,000, Saudi Arabia over 6,000, Jordan closing in on 4,000, and Israel over 3,000. That's over 100,000 deaths, and again, in several of these countries, the actual number is likely much higher. The economic impact has also been devastating. In Israel, for example, tourism went from three straight years of setting records to total closure in a matter of weeks. Tens of thousands of guides, drivers, hotel workers, restaurant employees, and other support workers were thrown out of work for the past nine months, and those jobs won't be coming back until tourism does. Egypt also depends heavily on tourism, and they were just starting to recover from a string of terrorist incidents when their tourism industry crashed yet again. Now, one bizarre positive, if if we can even call it that, uh, that seems to have come from this pandemic is that incidents of terrorism in the region dropped significantly. This includes both state-sponsored terrorism and groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, They simply dropped off the radar. The toll from this pandemic, both economically and in human lives, will continue to climb as we head into the new year. Let's hope that the vaccines will have a positive impact and that the new strains of virus that are coming out won't create additional problems. The second story of significance for 2020 has to be the Abraham Accords, the peace treaty between Israel and a number of surrounding Arab countries. What impact has this had on the region, Charlie, and will that impact continue as we head into 2021? Yeah, if someone had predicted 12 months ago that Israel would sign peace treaties with the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco, no one would have believed them. In fact, when President Trump unveiled the, quote, deal of the century, to bring peace between Israel and the Palestinians back in January, it was immediately rejected by the Palestinian leadership, giving the impression that no peace was possible under this president. But that's when the Trump administration pivoted away from the Palestinians to begin a new approach to peace in the region, 
rather than having everything hinge on an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians with the Palestinians refusing to compromise or even negotiate, the administration began quietly working on the Abraham Accords. The plan was to develop an agreement based on a win-win philosophy. Peace would allow Arab countries to benefit from Israeli technology and from U.S. military and financial aid. Israel would gain outlets for their expertise, while also helping forge an alliance of countries united against Iranian aggression. The full list of countries agreeing to make peace with Israel might not yet be complete. A number of other Arab countries are expected to join in the not-too-distant future. The Abraham Accords undercut the Palestinians by signaling that these countries were no longer willing to place Palestinian intransigence above their own national interests. Another impact the Accords have had on the region was the message sent to both Iran and Turkey, two of the largest countries in the region who have ambitions of territorial expansion and influence. Mm -hmm. In the Accords, these smaller countries are joining together in a way that will make it harder for them to be intimidated by Iran or Turkey. These countries, along with Israel and Jordan, will help counterbalance those larger countries' threats. If you're just joining us, that's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at major stories that have impacted the Middle East throughout 2020 and will likely linger into the new year. Story number three might be Israel's political paralysis, which is really a carryover of events in 2019. Charlie, after three elections in the span of one year, a coalition finally formed in May. Sadly, that government has collapsed after just seven months. I just can't believe it. Why didn't this government succeed? Yeah, it it reminded me of Groundhog Day, you know, just the same thing happening over (laughs) and over again. Well, the agreement between Likud and Blue and White also reminded me of a verse in Amos 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? The obvious answer to Amos's question is no. When you see two people walking side by side, you assume there's some sort of commonality or agreement that's drawn them together. Supposedly, the fight against the coronavirus was to be that common bond. But the two main parties started sniping at one another almost from the very beginning. They were like two people who got married after a whirlwind courtship and then quickly discovered that they had virtually nothing in common. Hmm. And the ultra-religious parties, who are also part of that coalition, proved to be a stumbling block when it came to making hard choices on the best approach to fight the pandemic. Israel careened from one plan to another in a fairly futile attempt to curb the virus. And it didn't help that many Israelis ignored or simply chose not to follow the different directives that were issued. The best illustration of how dysfunctional this coalition is, is the fact that their initial agreement said they would approve budgets for 2020 and 2021 within the first 100 days of the coalition. Then that deadline was postponed until December. And now here we are with less than a week left in 2020, and they never even passed a budget for this year, let alone for next year. The two parties reached a last-minute agreement to keep the coalition intact last Sunday night, only to have it fall apart on Monday. There's been plenty of recrimination, but virtually no cooperation. So 2021 looks like it'll start much the same way as 2020 did with all the political parties pointing fingers at one another and then claiming that they alone have the answers for the country's health crisis and economic problems. So all I can say, John, is stay tuned. It's going to happen all over again. You know, Charlie, if this was a some sort of a television melodrama, no one would believe the script even. They'd say that's not possible. 
Oh, you're exactly right. But it, if we think we have problems with our government and the way it functions, we've seen nothing compared to how <laughs> Israel's been going the last two years. Well, the final story for 2020, certainly Turkey's ongoing attempts to extend its influence across the Middle East from Iraq and Syria to Libya. Why is Turkey's President Erdogan so focused on expanding Turkey's footprint? You know, a bit of history is needed here to help understand this. For nearly 70 years, Turkey has been an ally to the West and a partner in NATO. But what people might not remember is that throughout that time, Turkey has had a tendency to drift away from a Western-style government toward Islamic fundamentalism. At the end of World War I, Ataturk founded Turkey as a secular democracy, and he envisioned the army as its guardian. Turkey had army-led coups or threats by the army to overthrow the government in 1960, 1971, 1980, 1993, and 1997. It's as if the army became that counterweight that kept pulling Turkey back from sliding into Islamic fundamentalism. Now, during that time, Turkey applied for membership in the European Union. In 1997, during that threatened coup, the West pressured Turkey's army to back away from inserting itself into the government. Since then, each election has pushed Turkey closer and closer to being an Islamic Republic. And the failed coup in 2016 seems to have weakened the armed forces to the point where they no longer have the ability to stop this march. President Erdogan is the public face of this growing Islamic drift. He also seems to be enamored with recasting Turkey into a 21st century version of the Ottoman Empire. I believe he sees two advantages to that vision. First, it helps galvanize the support of the Turkish people by uniting them around the idea of recapturing Turkey's past glory and by appealing to the religious conservatism of the majority. And second, it provides a pretext for Turkey's expansionist policies in Syria and Iraq and Libya, and even in the recent conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Turkey wants to be the dominant supporter of Sunni Muslims, much like Iran is the dominant supporter of Shiite Muslims. Again, Erdogan seems to be trying to rebuild that Ottoman Empire. A few news organizations paid much attention to Turkey in 2020, but that was a mistake. Turkey remains a country on the move, and it should be watched closely. And that's a look at trends that have shaped the Middle East for 2020. Coming up, the Israeli equivalent of the Red Cross. Fascinating stories of hope and courage here on The Land and the Book. They are active in medical and relief work around the globe. But have you heard of Magen David Adom? Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. We're the guys that offer a one-hour flyover of the Middle East every week. My name is John Geiger, and we're excited to welcome to today's broadcast Yoni Yagodovsky. Uh, he is Director of International Relations for Magen David Adom, Yoni has been involved in the response to almost every mass casualty incident that's taken place in the last 25 years in and around Jerusalem. Uh, he operates training drills around the world and joins us by phone today from Israel. Welcome, Yoni. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. Pleasure being with you. So exactly what is Magen David Adom? How large an organization are we talking about here? Well, Historically, Magen David Adon was formed in 1930 
and it was uh, started as a civilian organization similar to a Red Cross organization providing mm -hmm. humanitarian and health care to the growing population in, in Palestine at that time, or Eretz Israel as we call it, uh, and so on, and becoming a national organization after the War of Independence in 1948. We are an organization that runs and provides the pre-hospital emergency response to all Israelis with ambulances and mobile intensive care units. We activate highly advanced technologically call centers. We run the national blood system of the state of Israel and provide all the blood needs on a daily basis to the Israeli hospitals and also store blood for time of emergency. And we do provide uh, educational and humanitarian relief yeah. all over the globe mm -hmm. for countries in need, including training, etc. You have been involved now for 25 years, and you've seen a lot of uh, incidents. What's one of the more dramatic moments that you have lived through with Magen David Adom? Well, I was the director of the Jerusalem region of Magen David Adom during uh, the Intifada that was, uh, let's say, in the beginning of the 2000, 2000 to 2005, etc. It was... Uh, a very, very difficult time for all of us in Israel because uh, horrible terror attacks happened on a daily basis, sometimes more than once a day. Buses exploded, uh, uh, public places were intimidated or were threatened, and there were a lot, a lot of thousands and thousands of Israelis that were badly injured mm. on a daily basis. And uh, it was a very challenging time to any Israeli, especially to the people of Magen David Adom, because we had to maintain a high level of alert, respond within minutes to any given event. In addition to the regular treatment of people with cardiac issues, respiratory issues, car accidents, etc. But our protocol was to be at the scene within four to five minutes. And within 10 minutes to have at least 20 teams at the scene of ambulances and mobile intensive care units. And we have a fantastic system that responds to that and is ready to deal with it. But yeah. to run the entire operations at the Jerusalem region at that time was extremely challenging. And fortunately, because of a fantastic team of hundreds of volunteers and employees, we were able to cope with it, not only in Jerusalem, but that was my task, but all over the country. Yoni Yagadovsky is Director of International Relations for Magen David Adom in Israel. You know, there's a, a human side to this, too. Uh, it's one thing to, to uh, push buttons and, and uh, show up with uh, ambulances and, and direct medical uh, uh, you know, traffic, but uh, the idea of keeping a level head, uh, of, of dealing with people who have been traumatized emotionally, uh, that has to be an incredibly challenging component as well. Correct. Um, basically, what we are from the basics, from ground level, we are an organization of people, highly dedicated volunteers and highly trained volunteers and employees that are treating their fellow neighbors. Yes. They're treating the people who live in their community 
Sometimes you even know them, you know, the family, you know, the, the overall history. Sometimes you are even friends. Mm. And when something bad happens from a medical point of view, we are there to assist. So always emotion involved in it. Yeah. And what we always tell our team members, that it is the most normal thing is to have feelings. Yeah. And to be able to overcome the human feelings while you are focusing on the medical treatment of the person. But if you are, let's say, numb, something is wrong with you. How does Magen David Adom intersect with this uh, global disaster known as coronavirus? Uh, it's everywhere, and we read about it in Israel, too. How do you, how do you address it? What kinds of trends are you seeing? Uh, what's, what's going on there? First, it's, it's, it's a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge because it's an enemy that you cannot visually see. And it is highly contagious. Israel is now, um, after hopefully the second outbreak, main outbreak, since uh, the beginning that we, let's say, we were introduced to the virus late February, uh, beginning of uh, March 2020. Magen David Adom is the main provider for all the swab tests all over the country. Hmm. It was something that we were asked to carry out by the Israeli Ministry of Health when it was clear that Israel is already exposed. And we are testing at home, at drive-through areas, in senior citizens' homes, in the educational system, anywhere every Israeli who needs to be checked. At the first phase, we were the only one. one. Now there are also additional groups, especially the public healthcare system that is also doing these type of swab tests. We are the only organization that was able to respond to this amount of tests within a couple of days because we have highly trained volunteers and employees that were recruited to this assignment. We have tested more than two and a half million people. Wow. And the numbers are growing daily. We test every day about uh, close to 20,000 people all over the country. What do you think America might learn from the way Israel is handling this crisis? I think that the biggest lesson is the fact that you can reach other people, if you have good community approach and you are able to work within the communities. With the leaders of the communities, by that you can address more people, by that you can reduce the natural tension and even fear that people have. And according to that, you can uplift the number of people who are being tested on a daily basis. Mm. Because Unfortunately, if you do a swab test today, the result is accurate for today, but it might not be the same within a couple of days. Yeah. If you are exposed to someone and, let's say, God forbid, you, you are becoming sick. Yoni Yagodovsky is involved in the response to almost every mass casualty incident that's taken place in the last 25 years in the Jerusalem region as he serves with Magen David Adom, and he also runs training drills around the world. Well, Israel is uniquely composed of Jewish people as well as Arabs and others. What kind of service does Magen David Adom 
offer Arab peoples? The same. For Magenda Vidadom, people are first and foremost human beings. Yeah. And whoever lives in Israel is entitled to equal service. And we are enjoying the fact that within the ranks of the organization, both volunteers and employees alike, we have people from the entire spectrum of the Israeli society, mm-hmm. where they are Christian, Muslim, Jews, or Jews, and also where they are orthodox or secular, it doesn't, female and male, all alike. Our philosophy is that if we have volunteers in each community, in each neighborhood, in each even street, the level of services that we will be providing will be extremely high, very handy, and reachable to everyone. And that's our main goal, to be there, to assist people, to work with people and activate anyone who is capable enough to provide medical services to his neighbors and his friends. So what's the hardest part about doing this work, Magan David Adom? I think that uh, the main challenge is the, uh, you can call it the psychological aspect, because unfortunately, we meet with a lot of tragedies. Yeah. We are not capable and able to save the life of everyone. And this is an ongoing, uh, let's say, inner struggle. Because on one hand, we know that in some cases we might have been able to save the life of a person. But on the other hand, uh, we know that there are powers that are much beyond us and not always we are successful. Mm. On the other hand, we see the successful events and the success in reaching a person who has a severe heart attack and we are getting to him within a few minutes, giving him the initial medical treatment, sending the data live from the patient location to the receiving cardiac department in the nearby hospital, making sure that they are ready for early catheterization and rushing him into straight to the cat lab, knowing that this person, because of this chain of survival that we are part of, will survive. And we'll go back to his normal life and to his family. It's the same in trauma. It's the same in stroke patients. It's the same with people with other severe medical problems. And the pure joy is to be involved and deliver a baby (laughs) and bring new life to the world that we fortunately do every day, once or twice a day, somewhere in Israel. Tell us a story of of relief work that makes you say, this is why we do what we do. Uh, A lady, a man, a child, someone whose story is lodged in your heart that uh, you'll go to your grave with. I think it's uh, something that will follow me for the rest of my life. It was one of the first incidents that I was involved in when shortly after I finished my basic training when I was 16 as a youth becoming a youth volunteer in Magen David Adom in Jerusalem. And I was uh, taking a bus to the city center when I heard a loud explosion. Uh, it was a terror attack many years ago. Uh, traffic stopped. I was sitting in a bus. Uh, I asked the driver to open the bus door and to release me and let me run over 
to the scene, which was just around the corner. After a lot of conversation and, and you know, stress, he was willing to open the door. Let, and I ran over. It was the first time in my life that I saw real victims of an explosion. I utilized my own internal power and, and, and the knowledge that was extremely fresh in my mind that I just studied. And I began to provide medical assistance and control hemorrhages, got into the ambulance with, with the patient that was severely bleeding and rushed into the nearby hospital, went back with the same team and took another patient that had severe chest trauma. And after a couple of days, I remember clearly it was Friday morning, early next week, I was asked by then the director of the Magen Davidodom in Jerusalem to come with him to the hospital uh, to visit the patients. Mm. And I was pretty much in shock. I, I, I didn't even know that he knows me, mm. even pay attention to me, because we were tens of us involved with that event. And I met with these two people that I was involved in saving their lives. And I will never forget them. It's uh, the best feeling I've ever had in the overall work that I've done in the organization. And you've been serving faithfully all these years since. Thank you, Yoni, for your stories, for your time, and your dedication there to Megan David Adom. A pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for hosting me. All the best. And together we will overcome these uh, difficult days. Yeah. Yoni Yagodovsky is with Megan David Adom. And you can learn more about them at our website. Coming up next, Charlie's answers to your questions here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, now has his Bible open, his mind fully engaged to address one thing and one thing only, questions that have come in from listeners like you. Let's start with Leah's question. She listens to us from Youngstown, Ohio. She says, I love listening to your radio program via the Moody Radio app. Hey, if you have yet to discover that app, it's at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Now, Leah shares that she recently had a very traumatic miscarriage and was wondering if there were any instances of miscarriage in the Bible or any biblical thoughts about this terrible reality. Thanks for your thoughts. Yeah, and the Bible does contain instances of miscarriage, though when it does, it's usually an indirect reference. For example, in, in Job uh, chapter 3, Job cried out, Why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? Uh, Job felt his pain was so great, his death so close that he might have been better off had he died before being born. But later, God helps Job gain a better perspective. Uh, but the passage shows the anguish Job was feeling. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah says almost the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 20. He wishes he'd never come out of the womb alive. He says, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Uh, Jeremiah struggled with depression and God still used him in a mighty way. Now, those verses don't really help, though, with the pain you're feeling. Uh, so let me point you to some other passages that hopefully will help. Uh, the first is Psalm 139. 
Uh, in that psalm, uh, it says, You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. He ends saying, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now that passage tells me that your unborn child was a real person who was intimately known by God. It also tells me God was watching over your child, even in the womb, and knew exactly the number of days the child would live. That was far less than you planned, and certainly uh, you were hoping for more, but it was exactly what God had planned. Uh, And David says something similar in 2 Samuel 12. He experienced the death of a newborn son. Here's what the passage describes just after the child died. His servant said to David, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child's dead, you get up and eat. And he said, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept and thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious and let the child live, but now that he's dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I'll go to him, but he'll not return to me. Now, that might sound strange at first, but follow along. David cared deeply for this young child and did all he could to get God to allow the child to live. But once the newborn son had died, David rested in both God's grace and God's eternal plan. He recognized the child's life was in God's hands and there was nothing he could do to change that. And he also recognized the child hadn't ceased to exist. The child had passed on to the afterlife where David would someday follow. And that's why he said, I'll go to him, but he'll not return to me. Now, all of that to say, the loss of a life is precious and it is traumatic. And don't let anyone minimize your pain or grief. Be honest with God. Tell him how hurt and sad you are. But then focus on his words of promise. Words like Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Your unborn child was precious to the Lord and God received your child to himself. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God wants to come alongside and provide you with his comfort in this time of difficulty. He genuinely cares for you and just put your trust in him. Let's pray for Leah real quick. Lord, we thank you that your heart is for Leah. We think of her loss, the trauma it has introduced into her her life and her family. We pray that today you would lift her spirit. Uh, We thank you for the promise of Psalm 145. We thank you that the Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down like Leah. Encourage her today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here's an interesting question, Charlie. This guy says, I received a post that says the NIV Bible is now owned by HarperCollins, which also publishes the Satanic Bible, he says. The piece also says translations like the NIV and ESV have removed almost 65,000 words from the Bible, including Jehovah, Calvary, and Holy Ghost. It also says they have taken out 45 complete verses. Is this true? And if it is, can I even trust these new versions? Yeah, and those passing these things around really are presenting half-truths that are intended to scare people into using only the King James Version of the Bible. Now, here's the rest of the story. Zondervan and Thomas Nelson were indeed bought out by Harper Collins Publishers, but they set them up as a separate entity still reflecting the market they're trying to reach. The HarperCollins Christian Publishing Division doesn't publish the Satanic Bible. A second thing to understand is that Zondervan doesn't own the copyright to the NIV or the ESV. Those are controlled by translation oversight committees. Zondervan licenses the right to publish the translations, but they can't make arbitrary changes. 
Uh, some of those other details don't stand up to scrutiny either. For example, Holy Ghost isn't in New Translations because ghost has a meaning today it didn't have when it came over into English from the German word geist, which is the word for spirit. The NIV and virtually all other modern translations do have Holy Spirit, which is a better modern translation of the Greek phrase. Uh, The word Calvary isn't in new translations because the Greek word used to describe the place of crucifixion was cranion, from which we get the word cranium. It's the Greek word for skull. Calvary comes from the Latin word for skull. So all new translations do is give the literal English translation. Today, if you go to the garden tomb in Jerusalem, the guide will show you Skull Hill. If you want to speak in Latin, you can refer to it as Calvary, but it's still the word for skull. And finally, and I could keep going on, but finally, those 65,000 words that were removed, well, I'm not sure if that's an accurate number or not, but it comes from the tendency to smooth out and shorten words and expressions in modern Israel. Now, here's just one example. In the Lord's Prayer, in the King James, it says, Our Father, which art in heaven. That's six words. The NIV says, Our Father in heaven. That's four words. They removed 33% of the words in that phrase but they didn't change anything. Hmm. It's just more understandable for people today. So let me end this way. I think the King James is a good translation. I grew up on it. But I also think the New King James, the NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard are also good translations. None are perfect. And that's why it's good to examine several different translations when you study the Bible. And when you do, I think it'll help you understand more clearly what God actually said in his word. Boy, that is so helpful. Thank you, Charlie. And I hope you found that helpful as you listen to This is the Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Answering those questions, Dr. Charlie Dyer, an Old Testament scholar, former pastor. Here's a question from Joe. He says, I'm just a regular Christian, saved by grace, and I'd like to start a Bible study, one in English, one in Spanish. Maybe the setting might be at a park where we'd cook some breakfast and invite the curious seekers and church folks to learn one book at a time. I asked a pastor for a Bible study that he would recommend, and he said, the book of John. That's it. So can you help me with what I need to complete my mission? Yeah, let me start by saying I think this is a great idea. I think, in fact, you have a fantastic plan there and a great heart. And you'll discover that actually one of the best ways to help you learn God's Word is to teach it to others. Now, here's some suggestions. Uh, You can actually find some free seminary classes on the Gospel of John online. Uh, In fact, one's from Dallas Seminary. Just Google Dallas Seminary, Gospel of John, and you'll find it. Uh, Second, you could do your own inductive study of the Gospel of John using a book to just help guide you through your study. Precept Ministries has a 13-week study. It takes about 30 minutes a day, six days a week, and it can help you learn the Gospel of John for yourself. Now, a couple other final thoughts. Uh, If you don't have one, I'd suggest you buy a good study Bible. It'll give you additional information that'll help you understand the text. And second, I would just encourage you to purchase a one or two volume Bible commentary. That's the equivalent of having a professor sitting beside you who can help you understand details that might not otherwise be clear. In fact, I'd recommend the Moody Bible commentary, a one volume commentary that is a great resource to help understand a book like the Gospel of John. One more question today from Bernard. What did the Jewish people do to cause the Romans to destroy Jerusalem? Yeah, well, actually, I'd answer it two ways, politically and prophetically. Politically, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in response to a Jewish uprising against their control. In AD 66, riots erupted over Rome's taxation policies. Uh, Rome responded by uh, raiding the temple to secure the funds. The people responded by uh, forcing the Romans to flee. And finally, the Roman army came in 
put down the revolt and destroy Jerusalem to send a message to other nations saying, this is what happens when you rebel against Rome. Now, prophetically, the destruction happened because of the nation's rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. During the triumphal entry uh, on Palm Sunday, Jesus predicted the fall of the city. He wept over it and said, if only you had known on this day what will bring you peace, but it's been hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you, encircle you, hem you on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They won't leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. So it was God's prophetic judgment for rejecting their Messiah. Good news for you. We're headed for Israel, and you don't need a ticket. You just need to stick with us for Charlie's Devotional. It's segment four, a great memory for you as we take you to a passage in Scripture you'll never forget on the land and the book. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and this fourth and final segment brings us a devotional from Charlie. And I love the way Charlie makes us feel like we're right there on the spot in the text as it unfolds. We'll head for Luke 2, a familiar passage. First, though, this Holy Land experience. I was recently in Israel over the summer, and came back just um, with a different perspective on what the scriptures say and mean. It's amazing because I have heard Charlie Dyer say numerous times that it actually brings scriptures to life and it puts them in color. So typically we would be reading the scriptures and it was kind of a two-dimensional experience. But having been there now, it is just amazing how scripture does come to life And you actually are able to picture the places where these people lived that you're reading about and also these events that have taken place. You know exactly where they took place. And it just makes things so much more meaningful and real in my life now. Appreciate that testimony very much. Well, at the center of the Christmas story is a birth story. And Charlie, you know, when you think about the way that birth happens today, typically in modern hospitals, in sterile environments, it kind of removes us from the uh, the original Christmas story, I think. Over the past hundred years, giving birth has become a clinical event in Western society. You know what I mean. Hospitals, doctors, nurses. For a time, hospitals wouldn't even allow the father to be present at birth. Thankfully, much of this is changing and we're Again, recognizing the birth process is a normal part of life. When Jesus was born, things were much different. No hospitals, no doctors, no nurses. The Gospel of Luke, written by a medical doctor, describes the event in a simple, natural way. Joseph and Mary had traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem to register for the required Roman census. And then Luke says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Who helped Mary with the delivery? We're not told, but it's reasonable to assume she was attended by a midwife or by some older women from the town. Every village must have had a group of wise, experienced women who helped young mothers through the process of delivery. Since both Mary and Joseph traced their family lines back to David, it's reasonable to assume the women of Bethlehem would come to the aid 
of these out-of-town relatives. There may have been no space available to house the young couple, but these women must surely have had room in their hearts to show compassion to a young woman going through labor and delivery for the first time. And where was Joseph in all of this? Well, if he followed the custom of the day, he was outside waiting anxiously for news about the condition of his wife and child. Perhaps some of the men from the town were also gathered with him, offering words of encouragement and advice. I'm sure everything will be fine. Perhaps the child will even be a son, one might have said, unaware that Joseph already knew the sex of his unborn child. After giving birth, Mary wrapped her newborn son in cloths, or, as you might remember from the King James Version of the Bible, swaddling clothes. But why would Mary wrap her son in fabric, bound tightly around his body by strips of cloth? Some ancient writers tried to find in the swaddling clothes a picture or a sign that the divine nature was now concealed, swaddled, as it were, in human flesh. Others saw a typological relationship between Jesus being wrapped in cloths and placed in a manger as a baby, and later, as Luke records, being wrapped in linen cloth and placed in a tomb cut in a rock following his crucifixion. But could there be a simpler explanation? In ancient times, the wrapping of a child in strips of cloth was a sign of the parent's loving reception of their child. Within the culture of the Middle East, such babies would have been bathed in warm salt water and then wrapped in strips of soft, warm fabric. How do we know this? Two Old Testament passages provide us with insight into these practices. The first passage that uses imagery of birth and swaddling comes from the book of Job. Toward the end of the book, God confronted Job and asked Job to explain how God created the world. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or who shut in the seed with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? Job 38. God describes the birth of the world and he pictures the dark clouds swirling around the planet as the strips of cloth he wrapped around this new creation. If the book of Job pictures God blessing his new creation by wrapping it in swaddling clothes, the prophet Ezekiel uses the imagery to picture a far sadder scene. He describes the history of the city of Jerusalem as the story of an unwanted child on whom God bestowed his favor. The city's origins gave no hint as to its future greatness as Israel's capital and the site of God's holy temple. Ezekiel writes, As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. As an unwanted child, Jerusalem was neglected and uncared for until God poured out his grace on her. But note carefully, that wrapping the child in swaddling cloths was part of the normal care and love one would expect at a child's birth. If all newborn babes are wrapped in swaddling cloths, in what sense was the wrapping of Jesus in such cloths symbolic? Remember, in Luke's account, when the angel appeared to the shepherds, they gave them a sign. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The key here is to note that the swaddling cloths by themselves are not the sign. The shepherds would find the child wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
the likelihood of both events happening randomly was extremely remote. A toddler could conceivably climb into a feeding trough. But a child wrapped tightly in swaddling bands, as a newborn would be, could only be placed there deliberately. And what mother would place her newborn into the equivalent of a barnyard feeding trough? That's how the shepherds would know they had found the child. A newborn king, even the Jewish Messiah, wrapped in swaddling clothes? That wouldn't be unusual. The cut of the cloth and the style of fabric might have differed. And yet, whether the newborn child was the son of a prince or a pauper, one would expect to find him swaddled. But a newborn child, especially a king, being deliberately placed in a manger, a common feeding trough for animals? That certainly made it easy for these shepherds to search through the village until they found the child whose birth had just been announced. And yet I wonder what was going through their minds as they started on a scavenger hunt, searching for the king of the Jews in a barnyard manger. And in many ways, things haven't changed. People today still struggle to accept Jesus as the Messiah, or as the Son of God, or as their personal Savior, because he doesn't match their preconceived ideas. But God asks us, just like the angels asked the shepherds, to look beyond expectations and focus on the facts. One doesn't expect to find a newborn king in a manger, but this one was. One doesn't expect God's Son, the Messiah, to die on a cross, but this one did, to pay the price for our sin. And maybe that's what makes Jesus himself the best Christmas present of all. As John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you have a personal relationship with the Jesus of the Bible? Do you know the one who was born in Bethlehem, who died on a cross in Jerusalem to pay the penalty for your sin, who rose from a borrowed tomb three days later, who ascended to heaven, and who's coming back again? If not, why not begin your own personal journey of discovery to search out this one about whom God said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Pick up a copy of the New Testament and begin reading what God says about this one called Jesus. And perhaps, like those shepherds so long ago, you will find yourself glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Mm, I get shivers down my spine every time I hear that passage from Luke 2. Charlie, thanks for that devotional. Well, if it's been a while since you've checked out our Facebook page, you're missing out on fresh photos and stories and quips and quotes and an online community that shares your passion for the Holy Land. Check it out by heading to our website, thelandandthebook.org, and click on the Facebook icon. Time's up, but I hope you return next week for another edition of Moody Radio's The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.